Our scripture text this morning is the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. Verses 1 and 2 introduce our study. It said, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying to me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This past July 4th, we celebrated the signing of the Declaration of Independence that was signed in 1776. Yesterday marked the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution in the year 1787. The signing of the Declaration of Independence initiated the intent of our founding fathers to establish a new nation. It took 11 years to establish that new nation as a constitutional republic. And that document was signed on September the 17th in 1787. On the final days of deliberation by the Constitutional Convention, according to James McHenry, who was a delegate from Maryland, a woman asked Dr. Ben Franklin, Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? A republic, replied Dr. Benjamin And then he added, if you can keep it. Well, we're struggling today here in the United States with the ability to keep that constitutional republic. And as we look at Bible prophecy, we find that this nation is doomed to fall by at least the beginning of that seven-year tribulational period which will follow the rapture of the church. If it does not fall from its position of being a world leader before the rapture of the church, with the advent of the rapture and the beginning of the tribulational period, it will be reduced to just another small nation without great deal of influence that will be swallowed up in a ten-nation confederation that is identified in the Scripture as the revived Roman Empire. In the book of Revelation, there are three judgments presented in sets of seven. Each one of these judgments has seven judgments presented in them. First, we have the seven seal judgments, and we found that in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And then we had the seven trumpet judgments 
that were introduced in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And then we had the seven vile judgments that were introduced back in the 15th chapter of Revelation in verses 1 through 8. Now an outline of the vile judgments, and that word vile is maybe better understood by our word bowl. They're bowls of wrath that are filled from God and dumped then upon the earth, poured out upon the earth. And so an outline of those vile judgments is given to us in chapter 15 of Revelation and chapter 16. Now, prelude to the vile judgments is found in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Preparation for the vile judgments in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. And uh, the pouring out of the vials of judgment upon the earth in chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. The purpose of these judgments is presented in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. And then we go back, as so often in the book of Revelation, to a parenthetical explanation or warning. And we have one of those in verse 15 of chapter 16 of Revelation. And then the 16th chapter of Revelation closes with the perfecting of the Bibles. So in Revelation chapter 15 and 16, we saw the presentation of a vision as it was viewed by the Apostle John, who is the scribe for the book of Revelation. And then last time, we did a very quick overview of the Armageddon campaign. And now the stage is set for chapter 17, which is identified by the subtitle, The Great Whore. Now this chapter gives us information about a religious system that because it appears to be Christian, is able to deceive millions of people in that particular period of the tribulation. It's identified as the great whore, which is strong language, but suitable for the ecumenical apostasy that is being presented in this section. Sometimes the language of the scriptures is pretty strong. Uh, we get into the book of Jeremiah in a study of the uh, book from the original language, and some people get very uncomfortable with the references that are there. I had a a mother who refused to let her teenage daughter come to our study on Sunday nights when I was pastoring in Huntington Beach because we were going through that and she didn't want her daughter exposed to that kind of vocabulary. But she was exposed to it every day at school. Just needed to get it in the proper setting and, and understand it. But uh, in this 17th chapter, we have the identification and explanation concerning the great whore. It is a reference to the ecumenical system that is a combination of Romanism, 
Protestantism, atheism. It's dressed up in the clothing of humanism, and it has a dash of Muslim theology that's thrown in. So it's going to be quite a mixture. Some of our churches have that near mixture today, but uh, they call themselves churches. But that will be uh, very prominent uh, in the tribulation. It will seduce all but the very elect of God under the guise of promoting unity and under the pursuit of world peace. It'll develop a great deal of popularity and have a great deal of power over uh, the political aspects of the tribulation as well. But in due time, in God's appointed season, He will bring it down. And so that's the information we are given here in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. Follow as I read through that. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now notice the symbolisms uh, as we read through here. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk, with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. And the saw woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now be careful with words like admiration more marvel than it is. doesn't carry the idea of appreciation that we sometimes use with the word admiration. In Revelation uses that kind of symbolism and those explanations to us from time to time and it's sometimes difficult for us to uh, decipher them. Picking up then at verse 7, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I'll tell thee the mystery of the woman. I love it when the Bible gives us some kind of, of imagery there, but then comes back and says, Let me explain what this is about. Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life 
from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he'll continue a short season, a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive power as kings for one hour with the beast. Those have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And He saith unto me, The waters that thou sawest, where the whole, uh, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. And the ten horns, which thou sawest upon the beast, they shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city, which reigneth over the king of the earth. This apostate religion is identified as the great whore because of spiritual adultery. We find that analogy of unfaithfulness to God to spiritual adultery throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament as well. And here in the final book of the New Testament, once again, that imagery. In our study of the book of Revelation, we have seen the symbol of a woman used for religion. In Revelation 2.20, we saw Jezebel as a presentation of pagan idolatry. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, we saw the woman clothed with the sun, and that woman represented Israel. In Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, the bride of Christ represents the church. And now in Revelation 17, the great whore represents the apostate religion that will be so vital and active and an important role in the political arena in the tribulation in the last days. The events of chapter 17 are not historical then, but they are prophetic. The events that described here are going to occur at the end of that seven-year period we identify as the tribulation. The chapter that we are looking at then details that which is simply stated 
back in chapter 16, verse 9, verse 19, where we read, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So now here in chapter 17, we have additional details that are given to us. And Paul warned about this in his writing to the young preacher Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 4, uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul wrote this. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, uh, some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and to doctrines of devils, literally doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. This same warning Paul continued in his second epistle to Timothy in chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 where he wrote, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heedy, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janison and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest on all men, as theirs also was. So this form of godliness and denial of the power manifested itself in early Romanism, in the Roman, the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church. And then later in the cults, like the Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism, And now in the mainstream of the charismatic movement, we have seen its influence with the Toronto experience, the Pensacola experience. Men like Benny Hinn, who claims that we become our own deity, we become God at salvation. Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin, who pushed the Word of Faith movement just makes God a puppet to do everything that you ask Him to do if you believe He will do it. Those errors of doctrine have penetrated the church and have prepared it. 
the promise keepers started out as a worthy agenda, but it was quickly changed uh, to embrace the ideas and the philosophies of secular humanism instead of the Word of God. The New Age movement is not a new movement. It's a new name for an age-old movement. And now we see the Islamic movement having gained great popularity and acceptance. The great whore is called the mother of harlots. And so this indicates that the system and philosophy of Babylonianism is not confined just to the Roman Catholic Church, but has permeated other strongholds of Christianity as well, even mainstream denominationalism. In order to understand this Babylon, then we need to go back in time and uh, see how it was dealt with and introduced to us in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis. Beginning at verse 8, And Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. And then in the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they all have one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they've imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound their language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The name of the city was Babel, which literally means the gate of God. But it was changed to Babylon, which means confusion. It had a form of godliness, but it denied the source and the power of that godliness. The philosophy of Babylon was a man-made way of salvation instead of God's way. And we saw the philosophy of Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar in as the king of Babylon later on. In Daniel chapter 3, 
Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof was six cubits and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together under the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the king, uh, before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. However, the outcome was not quite what Nebuchadnezzar had envisioned. There was judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar as is rendered in Daniel chapter 4, beginning with verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we have a, a list of some of the things. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom of the might of my power and for thy honor of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled with Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and he did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like a bird's claw. Well, who can deny the Babylonian philosophy in the ecumenical movement that was established uh, and made prominent by Pope John the Twenty-Third? The councils that he called, the ecumenical councils that he called, were even attended by representatives of atheistic Russia. The United Nations and the call for a new world order and with a new age agenda for a one world government uh, where old Babylonia can prosper under the guise of godliness. The current Pope 
has astonished even the inner circle of the Vatican, but his attempts to even bring Islamists into the movement is just the tip of the iceberg. The world seems to be preparing to welcome just such an agenda. But don't be fooled. God is not in this movement. Look at the judgment then with me of the great whore under the outline that I propose in chapter 17 verses 1 through 6. We have the Babylonianism is exposed. And then in verse 7 through 15, the vision is explained. And then in 16 through 18, the annihilation. Verse 1, chapter 17, Revelation. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, and with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The woman is described as sitting upon many waters. The great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now the phrase many waters is explained in verse 15. He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. So this term identifies the scope of influence that will be seen by the apostate church. It's comprised of various religions, not just denominations, but various religions, races, and cultures. Much like the World Council of Churches has been. But a step beyond that. The character of the whore is presented in verse 2. The world church will be characterized with her adultery and fornication. It says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drink, uh, have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. World church is committed to spiritual adultery with the world. Humanism will uh, arrive at a high level, even unimaginable in our minds today as replacing the church. The support 
of the great whore is identified then in chapter 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The beast that the church here is sitting upon is the Antichrist that was described back in chapter 13. He's pictured here as supporting the great whore. Of course, his motive is to advance his own agenda as he attempts to move to world power during the last part of the tribulation, and so there will be a rebellion against the church that we're speaking of. The ten horns represent the ten nation confederations of his kingdom, which we've identified as the revived Roman Empire. Now here we see the woman, the religious system, is controlling the beast, but only so that the beast can get what he wants down the road. This super church will actually be ruling the nations for a period of time in the tribulation. The location of the church is given to us by the statement having seven heads and ten horns. Now we go to Revelation 17.9 and it says the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. The city of Rome is known as the city of seven hills. There is no other city that is so identified by that term. All religions then will unite with Romanism and the headquarters of the church will be in Rome. And it will be under the influence then of this political, religious, and economic system that is identified in our study here in chapter 17. The prosperity and the wealth of the woman is identified in verse 4. The woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. The financial empire of apostate religion is very wealthy today. Nothing like it will be when the rapture of the the church occurs and all those natural disasters uh, uh, that we've been reading about that God's going to bring upon the earth will drive people to this church and the unification uh, with it. Now we are told that the name of uh, is written into the forehead, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. Now the word mystery is from that Greek word musterion, which we see quite frequently in our study of doctrine, because it means information known only to those that are in the organization. Well, this is the opposite side of the aisle in uh, this power struggle. 
and it is apostate and they're, they have their own handbook, uh, and the mystery of ancient Babylon is going to come to fruition uh, during this tribulational period. It was reported uh, as, as well that she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The um, report is that in the early days of Christianity, Rome put to death more than 50 million Christians before Rome was finally um, defeated. And uh, in doing that, of course, is the destruction of Jerusalem under the Roman Empire, the scattering or dispersal of the people to the various nations, and that still occurs today. The towers, the twin towers came down as part of a religious warfare. The Islamics that took the twin towers down had a religious agenda. And we're going to see that multiplied during the tribulational period. So the vision is explained to us in chapter 17 beginning with verse 7. The angel said unto me, Wherefore did you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Just a comment here on the Lamb's book of life uh, that is referenced. Names were not written. You have heard me teach that before the foundation of the earth that God wrote the name of every human being that would ever live upon the face of the earth in the book of the living or the book of life. Our names were written before the foundation of the earth, the scripture says. Some names are blotted out. The names that are blotted out are the names of those who do not receive Christ, the Messiah, as Savior. Their names are blotted out because they only have their works going for them and their works do not meet the standard. Now, my statement that all the names are written in seems to be contradicted here in this statement whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. I can explain that by the grammar. When it speaks of the names of the believers that are written in, it's the perfect tense that is used. Their names were written in the book in such a way that the result continues forever. The names remain in the book. The perfect tense is used in all of those. Well, the perfect tense is used here too. The perfect tense is a completed uh, event 
with the results continuing correction forever. But here we have the negative, uk, the, the word no or not. Their names were not written in a permanent way. And so they are blotted out. Verse 9 says, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. This was in 95 AD. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into into perdition. Now hang on, we're going to explain that. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and they will give their power and strength unto the beast. They shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the angel helps John understand what he's looking at. The angel said, why did you marvel? Let me tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, the one that has seven heads and ten horns. So the mystery of the woman and the beast that carried her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The ten horns are identified as ten kings, and they are identified with the ten toes in the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40 through 44. There Daniel said, the fourth kingdom, he identifies four kingdoms that are going to come. He said, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. We have this identification then being presented so that we can better understand what is occurring. He says, Whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but they shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest, the iron is mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, and he shall be dis- which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it 
shall stand forever. So God revealed to Daniel that there would be four world kingdoms before the Lord would come and establish His earthly kingdom in the millennial reign. There would be the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. Daniel 7, beginning at verse 2, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove with a great sea, upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second, like a bear. And it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse one from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You'll need the notes. Take home and review some of this, but let's break it down a little bit. We're speaking here of a revived Roman Empire. In verse 8, The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was and is not, and yet is. The Roman Empire came into existence in the middle of the 8th century before Christ. It was overthrown in A.D. 476, but its influence is still present, and there's a smoldering flame, be it so weak, as we look at Rome today that continues to flicker. What we have in the description here is a revival of that Roman Empire. The ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image identify the ten nations that form that confederation. The core of that is the Vatican. Its prominence as it is located there in Rome. In verse 9, we have, And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. 
As I've said, there's no other city, there's no other city or place that is referred to historically other than Rome as the city of seven hills. Even the Catholic confraternity edition of the New Testament that was published in 1963 on page 37 claims that Rome is Babylon. Rome is the city of the seven hills. Now the seven mountains actually have a double meaning because mountains are used symbolically to represent seats of government as well. And John writes, there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. Now remember, John is writing this in 95 AD. There had been five kings that were fallen Julius in, in the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, Tiberius, Caliglia, Claudius, and Nero. Those are the five that had fallen. One currently is. That's in 95 AD. His name was Domitian. One is yet to come. So Domitian was the last emperor king of the Roman Empire. But the Bible says there is one yet to come. That's the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. And we have identified then as the beast out of the sea. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven. He comes out of the, the line of the the seven previous ones, and he goeth into perdition. So these terms identify the revival of the empire and then its ultimate judgment. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. In 95 they had not received a kingdom, but they received power as kings for one hour with the beast, a short period of time with the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. They have one mind and they will give their power and their strength unto the beast. They make war then with the lamb. They shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So this verse introduces the Armageddon campaign that we reviewed last week in our study. And then we're going to get more detail about that when we get to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. The support for the whore is said to be worldwide. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And then in verses 16 through 18, we have the annihilation. 
the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, they shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire, for God hath put into their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So God's giving them this position, and uh, the ten horns then turn to hate the the church, the ecumenical religion. They rebel against that, and they will annihilate then that system as we see here in the text. Now, those individual kings will unwillingly serve God. Little do they know that God is the one that is opening the doors of opportunity and and uh, even uh, fanning the fire of their desire in those things uh, to bring that about. And they will then unite with the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. God has put in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdoms unto the beast until the words of God are finalized. So God put it in their hearts to cooperate in the plan that he has to bring judgment upon apostate religion, and uh, they will follow through with that until the plan is complete. And then in verse 18, The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So, the Bible often records references such as this, that great city, to illustrate a type or to identify a long-standing connection. Rome, as the headquarters of the apostate religion, is likened then to Babylon of old before God uh, scattered the people upon the face of the earth. There was a time when someone would ask a question to which the answer was so apparently clear that I would respond by saying, is the Pope a Catholic? I've had to give that up. It was an attempt on my part, an attempt, I say, to be witty with an answer that it's obvious. But to use that term as the Pope a Catholic anymore, I have to raise some questions. Is he Catholic? (laughs) With what we see taking place with the Vatican today, uh, I've simply abandoned that. Pope Francis has been called the most ecumenical pope in history. After Pope John the Twenty-Third, that's quite a step. And he has stated that ecumenicalism is not to be limited to Christianity, but to bring other world religions in as well. He has embraced Islam as one of the ways to get to God. Who would have thunk it? (laughs) 
that a Catholic Pope would make such a statement and come to that conclusion. Well, they've been wrong on so many other things. Pope Francis has been named as Person of the Year everywhere, from Time Magazine to the pro-gay magazine called The Advocate, to Britain's Guardian that announced that Pope Francis is now the world's loudest and clearest voice against status quo. The Financial Times described the Pope as the leading global symbol of compassion and humility. He's been named by Esquire magazine as the best dressed man of the year. <laughs> well, he may not be the leader that we're reading about here, but he has certainly cleared the path for such a one that at the appointed hour will come to be recognized. That man of sin is not to be revealed until after the church is raptured from the earth. We're sojourners. We're foreigners, not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do the business of the kingdom. Our gifting and the circumstances that God brings into our lives define what exactly we're to be doing day by day, year in and year out, as He places us here as His witness to be lights to the world, to share what is coming and the means by which to be prepared for it. Because it all begins at salvation. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Next time, we're going to chapter 18 in Revelation as we continue to see this thing climax and as we see the end being described, we can certainly better understand what's happening in the news today. We're being prepped. We have the truth. We've been warned concerning the events. And so we need to be found busy about the Lord's work. Your circumstances this week and your gifting will define your role in that.